Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we talk about the latest from Westminster and offer some answers to the top five most popular questions we are getting from investors at the moment. With Nikki Eggers, Head of Investments, Sophie Traherne, Senior UK Political Analyst, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. Hello, welcome to another edition of Word on the Street, as we try to bring you the most up-to-date views on the coronavirus and its effects from the broad team of experts we're lucky enough to have in-house. Today, we're going to have a bit of a look at the latest from Westminster with our resident political sage, Sophie Traherne. Um, We'll also have Will to cover off some of the bits and bobs that have come in, um, as well as a quick-fire question and answer session um, to test Will on the top five uh, popular client questions we're getting in at the moment. So just before we get into that, over the next few weeks, we're also going to get a number of uh, senior executives from around the Barclays Group to come onto the show to give us some insights as to what's going on in the various end markets, um, much like we did last week with uh, Ian Workman, who kindly joined us. So anyway, today I'll start off with Sophie, if I may. So Sophie, hi there. And um, clearly the situation is changing on a daily basis. Um, even hourly basis, and the government has made some significant announcements in the space of just a few weeks. There's a constant stream of press conferences, daily if not more, um, and the PM himself is now in isolation. What can we expect next from the government's ongoing response to this pandemic? Yeah, thank you. Um, So obviously a lot of focus has been on the big political set piece each day. Uh, You mentioned the, the government's daily press conference, and we have obviously had some several major announcements um, from uh, the press conferences, in particular from the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak. Um, His announcements have been described as mini budgets, given their scale, from business support schemes, the job retention scheme, package of uh, support for the self-employed. These are all significant announcements from the Treasury, billions committed and a, a huge expansion of the state. So, Clearly, the message the Chancellor and the Prime Minister want to get across is that they will do whatever it takes to support the country through this crisis. Uh, They are well aware that there is some criticism coming their way about their response to the virus, questions being asked about the timing of the lockdown, whether the government is doing enough, how are they supporting the NHS, etc. So the rapid succession of major announcements at the daily press conference has shown the government really trying to to move quickly and demonstrate that they're gripping this crisis. And a a big moment uh, was the Prime Minister's address to the nation last Monday night, where 27 million people tuned in. And actually, the government's own approval ratings have been good. And and people do broadly seem to support the government's measures. For example, a a YouGov poll found that 93% of people support the government's lockdown. So in terms of what we can expect over the next few days, the Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, is back from self-isolation and will front up the daily press conference this evening. And clearly there's currently a lot of focus uh, in the news on testing for coronavirus, particularly testing NHS workers, which will no doubt continue to dominate over the next few days. And we might also see some further economic stimulus measures. So more to come. And it's it's worth keeping an eye on the press conference each day at around five o'clock. Thanks, Sophie. And what about other domestic priorities? What about all the issues we were talking about well before the pandemic, including you know topics such as Brexit? Um, hardly hear about it anymore. But where are we with those negotiations? Yes, in general, in terms of politics, it is quite extraordinary to look at how things have changed. Uh, we are no longer really talking about Brexit and the rest of Boris Johnson's time as Prime Minister will no doubt be dominated by the pandemic and its aftermath. 
it's difficult to see how in the months and years ahead the Prime Minister is going to be able to develop his plans for levelling up the country, for taxation, for reforming the civil service. Everything right now has to be about this pandemic. And, and once it looks like it's coming to an end, um, thoughts will obviously turn to the recovery and, and how the government prepares for that. In terms of Brexit, the negotiations uh, on the future EU-UK relationship were on hold because both the European Commission Chief Brexit Negotiator Michel Barnier and the UK's Chief Negotiator David Frost were in self-isolation. There has, however, been some activity this week. There was the first meeting of the EU-UK Joint Committee by teleconference this Monday to discuss the implementation of the withdrawal agreement, including a particular focus around the Northern Ireland Protocol. But I guess in, pro, in, in general, progress on the formal negotiations remains quite unclear. The third negotiating round uh, was originally scheduled for next week. But given the situation with the pandemic, it is increasingly difficult for uh, negotiators to plan ahead. So this means there is increasing talk that the UK will have to request an extension of the transition period, uh, which, remember, is still due to end in December this year. Um, and this is purely because of the disruption caused by, by COVID-19. Uh, and in light of this, it's worth keeping in mind the 30th of June date, which is the deadline for the decision uh, to, to extend that transition period. So clearly there is still a lot to play out, but it is a very different world for this government compared to when Boris Johnson walked back into Downing Street in December with, a, with an 80-seat majority. Yeah, and, and obviously the focus has been very much on, on the government itself, but, but we're also about to hear the result of the Labour leadership contest when exactly is the result going to be announced and how do you think the new leader will approach this current situation? So, as we know, Labour members have been voting since late February and the ballot closes uh, closed this week. Uh, Labour were due to have a special conference on Saturday to announce the winner, but this is obviously being cancelled and instead party members will hear the result via email and there'll be a, a press release from the party. Um, uh, supposedly, the three remaining candidates have been asked to pre-record a victory speech, which, uh, depending on the winner, will then be sent to members on Saturday. Keir Starmer is still the clear favourite and, and discussions are actually turning to how he will approach his first few days as leader. Clearly, he has to consider how he approaches the current pandemic, uh, but also, you know, how will he organise his party? Will he, he get rid of Jeremy Corbyn's allies in both the shadow cabinet and the party HQ? Are we going to see him move the shadow cabinet in a completely different direction to the, to sort of reflect the more arguably more moderate ring of wing of the party and, and sort of start fresh. So this could be a very different look Labour Party to the one we've been used to under Jeremy Corbyn. Um, Will, do we have anything specific to say about the UK economy at the moment or, or indeed data on the progression of the virus? Anything new to share? Yes, Nikki. I mean, it's um, and forgive the sounds of uh, Joe's PE in the background. Uh, neither of my children are going to be <laughs> that Joe Wicks? rapidly signed up for that. They're not going to be running away to the Balshoi Ballet, put it that way. But I think most uh, I think the point for us at the moment is that most economic statistics are going to provide us with a bit less information than usual at the moment. You know, um, certainly from a markets perspective anyway but we know that things are going to get pretty bad in the short run um large chunks of the economy um are coming to a full stop so we're seeing that um for us it's really now about how bad 
um, for how long. Um, and then this kind of part, people are really looking at kind of, you know, where we are in the virus, um, the outbreak, like you say. But the UK, like many other places around the world, is really trying to tamp, uh, you know, ramp up testing capacity to get a better um, sense of where we're at. And also, obviously, testing capacity is seen as key to answering that question, a really important question about, you know, when we can recover, is once you've managed to contain the spread of the virus, how do you want to start switching parts of, you know, the economy back on um, without allowing the outbreak um, outbreak to return? And what about elsewhere? Oil prices are, are very much in the news a lot at the moment. Are there any expectations that we might see a sort of ceasefire in, in the, the recently restarted market share war that we've had in oil? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, Nikki, and you're right to say, so, so the problem here remains a mix of um, factors. Uh, you know, on the one hand, you've got that pretty instantaneous demand drought uh, resulting from those kind of global efforts to contain the coronavirus, but also, you know, the market share war involving Russia and Saudi. Now, these two protagonists are seen as um, entities that can endure quite a bit more pain for various different reasons. Um, you know, Russia's currency has helped a little bit and, uh, you know, Saudi you know, has deep pockets still um, and, and also has a kind of, you know, very low production cross. But, you know, if prices stay at these levels for long, um, there are a lot of oil related businesses in places like the US, Canada, Nigeria that are going to struggle to make money even from already set up and producing wells. Um, so, you know, there are, you know, speculation that this could go on for quite a bit longer, to be uh, to be honest. Yeah. Okay. And so to the quickfire questions, um, I, I warned you. Um, so so five five key questions just, uh, you know, are, are doing the rounds amongst our, our clients and advisors at the moment. So thought that we would go through these um, just to just to give you the heads up. Uh, so the first one, will I be left with nothing given the market movements? The second, how long can this go on for? The third, should I sell now before it gets any worse? The fourth, when should I buy in? And the fifth, which regions or sectors can I cherry pick? So that's your that's your early warning. So let's start with the okay. first one. <laughs> um, will I be left with nothing? Yeah, I mean, I, I, this is you know a key question uh, for people looking at the markets for the first time. Um, that there is one terrifying moment in history, famous moment in history, when investors in a single stock country, a single country's stock index were left with nothing. That would be the St. Peter's Stock Exchange, uh, closed in 1914 for the First World War and then briefly reopened in 1917, uh, before the Russian Revolution saw it closed for the next 75 years. So that is an instant when, you know, stock markets went to nothing and didn't recover, uh, not least for, you know, some lifetimes. But there are two points to make here. Um, first, for the rest of the world's major stock indices, such losses have always proved temporary. Um, so even those that invested at the moment when equity, you know, share valuations, share market valuations were at their least connected with reality, uh, in certainly post-war history, that's that would be 2000, you know, the tech boom. Um, if you had invested at that peak, you'd still have enjoyed, you know, five to six percent a year um, just compounded uh, from stock market, from US stock market returns in dollar terms. The second point, um, and that is really that the unpredictable political, social and economic problems suffered by one particular 
particular country uh, are just one of the many reasons why we diversify investments across the entire world. Uh, and this helps really investors, uh, you know, from specific local risks. However, it also means that investors are able to harness, you know, the broader world's ingenuity and restlessness for their financial game. So this is a, an example of diversification, but also a belief that the world economy will continue growing. Um, and that's um, those, those are the keys behind this, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the confidence that I would have that, uh, you know, there are very few occasions a diversified investor is going to be left with nothing. Good. OK, that's that's comforting. Second one, how long can this go on for? Is this uh, a piece of string question or or can we actually see it? <laughs> it's an a little bit. You know, when we talk about quick fire answers from, uh, you know, economists and strategists, there's no such thing. We always have, you know, <laughs> two handed answers, don't we? But yeah, here, on the, the, one the old adage is that the, the greater the confidence you hear someone predict the future, the less you should trust them. Obviously, um, you know, that applies in spades here. However, there are a couple of hopefully useful points we can make. Um, First, um, part of the reason why recovery from some past recessions has been so tortuous um, is to do with the idea that most recessions come about to correct imbalances in the global or local economy. Now, ironing out such imbalances can be an economically long and painful process. Uh, you know, the last cycle probably pays some testament to that. However, the downturn we now face is of a totally different nature. Uh, it's an external shock that has nothing really to do with correcting such imbalances. Uh, in fact, the world economy walked into this blow in reasonably good health, we would argue. Um, now, alongside that, policymakers from central bankers, the governments have, have responded you know, vigorously. Um, and all of those factors feed our best guess that this downturn is likely to be you know, relatively brief relative to past uh, downturns, uh, but very sharp. OK, and, and so the third question should I sell now before it gets any worse? Yeah, I mean, this is um, one we get a lot. Um, and this is a very difficult point to get across in some senses because it's about a quite, quite a complicated concept called market efficiency. We've talked about this before, but basically the, the phrase embodies the idea that everything we all know, fear and hope is already reflected in the prices of things you see, like the FTSE 100, you know, the UK stock market. So if you're hearing lots of people worried that the situation is about to get a lot worse, the price um, of the FTSE 100 for example, likely has already adjusted to reflect these fears. Uh, now, to that end, you often find that your investments start turning around before you see the worst outcomes for the economy. Uh, so investments are essentially forward-looking in nature. Uh, and this tends to mean that individual asset investors, you know, this is what we found behaviorally, um, sell at the worst possible moment uh, when everything feels absolutely terrible, which tends to be the moment when a lot of the bad news is already in the price. And and so connected question, the, uh, the fourth question, when should I buy in? There are a couple of, again, uh, key points that are going to sound woolly, but hopefully are clear. But, you know, first, nobody knows what the future holds. Like I said, of course they don't. Most of humankind's guesses always revolve around drawing a straight line um, from current trends out to some point in the future. Uh, so current trends in resource depletion and inequality are simply extrapolated out to their, uh, you know, inevitably bleak conclusion. You know, for Hollywood, you add in a couple of angsty teens and you have a movie. However, the history of the human race is one of, uh, you know, is one of phenomenal advances in living standards, soaring life expectancy, plunging absolute levels of global poverty. Now, at the heart of these advances is something called productivity. Now, this word essentially encapsulates humankind's seemingly inexhaustible ability to invent new stuff uh, from the Humble X spreadsheet to Excel spreadsheet to penicillin to advances in, in artificial intelligence uh, and all round get better at using that new stuff. Now, it's this same force that is the driving force, sorry, of the long run, long term returns from a diversified investment portfolio. So essentially, this drive 
to do more with less combined with a proliferating toolkit and growing wealth creates kind of revenue and profit growth for the world's companies. This profits growth is what powers portfolio returns over time. So the simple truth is that it's very hard to time entry into markets because you don't know what the future uh, holds. I don't know when the next amazing invention is going to come along and neither, neither do any of us, sadly, otherwise I'm sure we'd be doing it. But I want to be there to benefit uh, when it does. And the problem I have is that part of the toll for accessing all of that uh, brilliance, human humanity's brilliance, uh, is these occasional downturns which come along mostly out of the blue, mostly unpredictably. Um, and so there's something to be endured. Uh, but what you have to try and do, if at all possible, is stick with it uh, because the benefits for that patient have been significant over time. And, and for fear of eliciting a sort of major eye roll from all our listeners, um, that that um, constant refrain that we have of get invested, stay invested, um, and and diversify um, rings true when when it's a when it's a question of um, you know as you say nobody knows for sure um, exactly what's coming around the corner, um, but over the longer term um, you, you should you should get rewarded for sticking with. Um, and then the last That's question, correct, um, yeah. which which regions, sectors, um, stocks, etc., can I cherry pick? I mean, I guess with you, you know, oil um, where it is today, people might be looking at that, or gold and other um, particular particular um, securities or or um, sectors. What are your thoughts on that, Will? Yeah, I mean, so the temptation at moments, and I, I get friends um, who mostly um, have no idea uh, what I do, just as I have no idea what they do during their working lives, uh, now ringing me up about kind of, you know, what, what about Brazilian airlines or what about, you know, cruise liners? Have they got to the bottom? Um, and I think here really, um, you know, diversification really is a necessary expression of my humility in the face that all we cannot possibly know or even guess at about the future from our current vantage point. It's not just about providing defence against those all known, uh, you know, those unknown country and sector level shocks. It's about realising that innovation is not something that belongs solely in the UK. The whole world is at it and I want to make sure that I don't miss out on any of it. Uh, and that's why I have a globally diversified portfolio and really just ch just cherry picking sectors um, you know, or putting too much confidence in your view of the future. So only having exposure to a certain sector or a stock uh, really just means that you miss out on all of that potential and you expose yourself to much more um, sort of idiosyncratic risks. And those risks aren't often massively mispriced, remember? So, you know, cruise lines and various other sectors are trading very low because people are worried, um, you know, about their potential to not exist uh, to a certain extent. So that is a risk uh, that you take with investing in very specific areas. Um, the more you diversify, that the more you get access to the world's opportunities and be able to kind of smooth out some of those risks uh, in terms of um, how you spread them across a much wider range of investments. Great, really, really clear. Thank you for that. And and I guess um, I, I hope you're you're okay with me putting out this invitation to our listeners and subscribers. Will, but any questions that um, that people are itching to pose, um, perhaps they can contact us for, via LinkedIn um, and, and make suggestions that way. Um, great. And Sophie, thank you so much for joining us. Um, it sounds like um, if we can. Um, talk you into joining us again. There might be a bit more to talk about again once we've had the Labour leadership results. Yes, of course. Happy to join. Brilliant. All right. Well, thank you so much. Um, we'll be back next week with more Word on the Street and uh, take care. Stay safe, everyone. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.